O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. How limitless is your might. How wonderful are your ways. How beautiful is your glory. We stand in awe. There is no one here, no matter how advanced in the Christian faith, that can claim when your word is opened, they understand with perfect clarity all that you would teach them. There is no one here that no longer needs the illumination and help of the spirit by whom these words have been inspired. No, we all need help. We all need assistance. We all need support. Give us a heart to obey your word. Give us ears to hear your voice. Give us feet to walk in your instruction. Create in this corporate gathering an environment where your word comes alive. Create in this building a greenhouse where gospel seeds are planted in good soil and growth results. Make us thirsty for thy glory and thoroughly consumed with thy holiness. It's through the blood of Christ we make this plea. Amen. Like the risen Christ has done six times before, he again writes a penetrating letter to a local church. In modern letters, we sign our name at the end. In ancient letters, you signed your name at the beginning. Jesus does this. Before the church reads one word of his letter, he wants them to know that these words came from the amen. Did you know amen was a name of God? That's why I don't like when people use amen in a joking manner. Because it's taking the Lord's name in vain. For you non-Christians here, we say amen to lend our affirmation to something. You will hear it around here during the prayers and during the sermon. It's lending your affirmation. Yes, Lord, let it be so. In fact, you may hear people replace it with the modern word. They may just say, yes. The pastor says, God, we need you. The people, says, the people say, yes. I said all that to say this. Jesus Christ is the Father's Yes. Verse 14b, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus Christ is a faithful and true witness. You can rely on him. He's been faithful in every way to his unfaithful people. He's been true in every sphere to his untruthful people. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now this does not mean that Jesus was created. That's what the Arians in the 4th century believed. They thought Jesus was the first and greatest creature God had made. They denied Jesus was eternal with the Father. Much like the JWs and the Mormons do in our day. Jesus is the beginning, the archaic of creation. It means the ruler or the originator. You find it used that way in Colossians 1.18. Jesus is the genesis of creation. All things were made by him and for him, including all the people reading this letter. 
Jesus is the one who began creation. He's the origin, the source of God's creation. And he sits in rule over God's creation. All right. Now that we know who is writing the letter, let's unpack the letter in this way. We're going to talk about first a luxurious city, then a lukewarm church, then a limitless Christ. So let's begin with a luxurious city. Jesus writes to Laodicea. Laodicea was the town you moved to when you wanted to raise your kids in a better zip code. It was the suburbs. It was the gated community. It was well manicured and safe. They had shops and food markets and luxuries that other cities did not have. In fact, archaeologists have excavated houses in Laodicea and they are huge for first century houses. Couple thousand square feet. When you compare that to Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, the houses were the size of a parking spot, less than a hundred square feet. Nazareth, small houses, humble town, Laodicea, big houses, elaborate town. And the city was known for three things. You may want to write them down. First, a clothing manufacturing center. A clothing manufacturing center. Laodicea specialized in raising a certain type of sheep that produced soft raven black wool. It was a bit like a textile center for this black wool and they would ship it around the world. So clothing was a big deal to this city, like it is to most affluent cities. They walked around in their long black dresses, their black Armani suits, their glossy black Jordans, they walked the pristine streets of Laodicea in the latest fashions. Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Prada. Look at the, look at the tag. Made from 100% pure black Laodicean wool. There's no one in Laodicea shopping for clothes at Target or Ross. That is beneath them. They care about how they dress, what covers their body. The city was known for being a clothing manufacturing center Secondly, the city was known for being a medical center. The city housed a famous medical school where Demosthenes and Alexander Philistheus, th these were well-known uh, ophthalmologists who practiced there, they had the finest medical college and seemed to specialize in a certain powder used to make eye salve. This eye powder was a compound medicine that worked in that that was worked into a yellow doughy paste and placed on the eye. Ear infections with, or excuse me, eye infections with discharges were common in the ancient world with all the dust and fecal matter in the air. The salve would suck the poison out. And it worked because they exported this eye salve throughout the empire. The city was known as one, a clothing manufacturing center, Two, a medical center. Three, a rich banking center. A lot of coins and a lot of gold passed through this city. And most of it stayed. They were filthy rich. In the ancient days, there were, there were public toilets and they were cold. Well, the rich would have their slaves go warm the toilets for them. That's how bougie these people were. Now, one event that summarizes their wealth, 
the city was destroyed in A.D. 60 by an earthquake. And the Roman historian and politician Tacitus said, and I quote, Laodicea recovered itself by its own resources with no help from us, end quote. In, in other words, they were so rich and arrogant that they refused federal disaster relief funds from the emperor. We will build our city back ourselves. And they did, more grand and posh than ever. They possessed a certain self-sufficiency. Nothing can hit us that our emergency fund can't handle. In summary, they loved their expensive black heels, black suits, and black hats. They famously discovered and produced this eye salve for eye ailments and shipped it around the world. They were filthy rich by any means you choose to measure, coins, banking, gold. We have first a luxurious city, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. We have next a lukewarm church, Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. So we have this nice church in the suburbs, but Jesus calls them lukewarm, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. My wife heard this text preached when she was a, a teen at camp. And the preacher put out 10 chairs and he numbered them. And he said, chair one is cold, chair 10 is hot. I want you to go sit in the chair that describes your spiritual state. And if any teen chose nine or below, he would say, God spits you out of his mouth. <laughs> God doesn't want you lukewarm or cold. He wants you hot. I thought that was creative. It missed the entire point of the passage, but it's creative. And I think many people misunderstand this passage. And not just guys like this with no theological training, but even those with brilliant minds. Uh, Tim Keller and John MacArthur, both hold to a similar view. They see it like this. Hot is you are on fire for God, and cold is you are cold toward God. Jesus says you're not hot spiritually or cold spiritually. You're somewhere in between, and that makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. And I guess I understand where it's coming from, the metaphor. In sports, if you're hot, it's a good thing. In marriage, if you're cold, it's a bad thing. So it's easy to always associate cold with being bad and think that God is presenting two opposite extremes, spiritually speaking. But let's just spend a minute playing this out. So if Jesus is saying, I wish you were cold spiritually or hot spiritually, but since you are not, I will spew you out of my mouth, would Jesus prefer for you to be a non-Christian than a mediocre Christian? I wish that you would totally hate me, but since you love me just a little, I spit you out. That makes no sense. I wish you were totally cold toward me instead of lukewarm toward me. See, I, I contest, along with other scholars, that to be hot is positive and to be cold is positive. Both are positive. Now, let me explain the historical context and then it will help us know the author's intent. Laodicea was famously known for lukewarm water. 
Cicero, the Roman philosopher who was born shortly after this letter was written, said that it was the foulest water in the entire empire. It was wretched to taste, disgusting. This was worse than water in Flint, Michigan. I, I remember as a child going to Florida to stay with my cousin for a couple of weeks in the summer. The first time I smelled Okeechobee water, I started gagging. Now granted, it doesn't take much for me to start gagging, but this happened right away. I, I couldn't brush my teeth in that water. I had to use bottled water. I would shower and be gagging the whole time. My cousin thought it was hilarious. He's like, you're so soft. They're pampering you in North Carolina. I'd be like, Greg, what, what is wrong with your house? Why does the water smell like that? And he explained it was sulfur or something. I don't know. I was too busy gagging. That's what this town had. Stinky water. The city looked great, lots of shops, lots of people dressed nicely, lots of money. Everything looked posh until you turned on the faucet. They had everything a city could ever want except for good water. Laodiceans were embarrassed by the water. It was a blight on the city, a great cause of embarrassment. Everywhere they went, people were spitting. Ugh, that's... That's nasty water. They were spitting more than high school baseball players. The water wasn't palatable. It caused nausea. Why did the water stink? Well, I'm relying on historical records of the city here and scholars who have written commentaries on this, but, but they say there was a triad of cities, a, a triangle of cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. We have a letter in the Bible written to the church at Colossae. It's really interesting. In that letter, Paul told the church, make sure the church at Laodicea reads this too. So Laodicea received its water from these two cities. They piped in water through stone cylinders from Hierapolis, six miles away. Hierapolis was known for having hot mineral springs. And other cities wanted this water for the medicinal value. But by the time the hot springs water made it to Laodicea, it had lost its fizz, its carbonation, and heat. It arrived lukewarm and smelly. Laodicea received its cold water from Colossae, 10 miles away. They were known for cold, pure, natural drinking water. But by the time it arrived through the pipes, the cold water became lukewarm water, and it smelled too. So you have underwater springs, hot, fresh mountain springs, cold, but by the time either arrived in Laodicea, they were basically the same, lukewarm. Now we get, the, get to the real meaning of this verse. There is a benefit to cold water, drinking, refreshing. There is a benefit to hot water, medicinal. The water in Laodicea was not beneficial. By the time it arrived through the stone pipes, it was tepid, ineffective, and distasteful. Both cold water and hot water serve effective purposes. Lukewarm water doesn't. Jesus tells this church, you are like your water, useless. He's saying, I wish you were at least good for something. Since this no good church had no benefit, no usefulness, they revolted Jesus. 
They were disgusting to him. The translation spit is tame. It could read, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I think the old King Jimmy says, I will spew you out of my mouth. You nauseate me. You turn my stomach. How bad does a church have to be to make Jesus want to vomit? Have you ever watched someone vomit? It makes you want to vomit. That's the natural reaction. When you see someone vomit, you vomit. And it should be the same in our text. When you see Jesus vomit, it should make you want to vomit. Have you ever seen that sawdust stuff that they throw on vomit at Disney World? And it turns it into dust. And then they just sweep it up. I don't know why they don't sell that stuff to parents. I mean, you'd make a killing. <laughs> Jesus speaks, church at Laodicea, that water makes you sick, you make me sick. Your water makes you want to puke, your behavior makes me want to puke. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now let's get off this vomit talk before I start gagging. <laughs> Verse 17. Jesus reads the church like an open book. For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Not only was the city rich, but the church was rich. They bragged about how much money they had in the bank account. They bragged about their emergency fund. They trusted in and rested in their finances. We are safe. We have need of nothing. Do you think because you are financially rich that you are spiritually rich? You are not. You are economically prosperous and spiritually bankrupt. Their finances bled over into their spirituality. They were smug, thinking it was their work ethic, their ingenuity, their resolve that made them, that brought wealth to them. Jesus said, you think you are rich, but you are poor. Their self-evaluation could not have been more wrong. It was the opposite of what they thought. You are sending ISAV around the world helping people see, but you're the ones who can't see. You're blind. If you were blind in the first century, the only job was begging. This was long before Braille Long before seeing eye dogs, your only option was to hold a cup and hope that people would put coins in it. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Oh, oh, I know you're wearing the fanciest clothes, the name brand stuff, but you care more about the name on your clothes than my name. You're shipping black dresses and black suits around the world, but you're sitting here spiritually naked. A luxurious city, Revelation 3, 14. A lukewarm church, Revelation 3, 15 through 17. A limitless Christ, Revelation 3, 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus tells this local church, I'm selling what you need. Buy your gold from me. 
Buy your clothes from me. Buy your medicine from me. He instructs the church to buy three things. Gold, clothes, and ISAV. You see the irony here? They were known for a banking center gold. A manufacturing center clothes. And a medical center ISAV. It's bleeding with irony. In verse 18, you have Jesus, the financial advisor, Jesus, the stylist, and Jesus, the doctor. All in one verse. Jesus, the financial advisor. Buy from me gold. You need, you need to buy my stocks. You need to buy my bonds. You need to invest in my mutual funds. Jesus can replace your poverty with spiritual wealth. Jesus, the personal stylist, buy from me white garments. Now, I, I know you like to buy clothes. Well, you need to go on another shopping spree. I know what would look good on you. White garments. Now, Jesus is not saying wearing a black dress is a sin. He's turning this spiritually. White garments speak of what Jesus clothes us with. It's symbolic of righteousness and purity. You've been running around half naked long enough. Get some clothes on. They're physically clothed, but spiritually naked. Jesus, the doctor, buy from me eye salve. Jesus puts his white coat on and walks into the room. You're sick, and I have the medicine for you. The only thing that will make you see spiritually is my eye salve. Jesus has told you what you need. But how do you buy gold when you're broke? How do you get rid of your spiritual nakedness? How do you buy ISAV that you can't afford? This letter is addressed to churchgoers who cannot afford to enjoy the riches of Christ or the garments of Christ or the medicine of Christ. Yet he says, buy it. I explain that. Well, this transaction is not a traditional purchase. This concept is not foreign to the Bible. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money. You say, yeah, Kyle, you presented the same problem, but from a different testament. How do you buy with no money? The only legal tender we need is repentance and faith. In verse 18, you have Jesus, the financial advisor, Jesus, the stylist, and Jesus, the doctor. In verse 19, you have Jesus, the disciplinarian. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The people Jesus loves, he calls on the carpet. He calls to account. He will not ignore sin. He will not let you continue in it. He will reprove you, discipline you. How many of you have been disciplined by the Lord? Would you raise your hand? You've been disciplined by the Lord. He has many unique ways to discipline us. To bring us back to himself. I have never felt more loved than when the Lord disciplines me. Because I know it comes out of a loving heart. 
Do you know what someone has called that is not disciplined by the Lord? Lost. Not his child. When is the last time you've known the Lord's discipline? You can point to a time and place. A circumstance or conversation. If you can't think of a, a moment of discipline, I would reevaluate if you're really a Christian. Those he loves, he disciplines. Without his restraining rod, we err and stray. We run to unwholesome pleasures. We become entangled in Satan's snares. God, discipline us. And may we never bucket but always kiss the hand that brings the reproof because it came out of love. You are poor, blind, and naked. But here's how you buy gold, clothes, and salve. Be zealous and repent. Repentance is our only response. Repentance is a long, hard road. But it's the only road to be on. There's a big difference between being sorry for the consequences of our sin and actually being sorry for our sin. Do you grieve over your secret sins? That's a mark that you're a Christian. Do you grieve over your secret sins? In verse 18, you have Jesus, the financial advisor, Jesus, the stylist, Jesus, the doctor. In verse 19, you have Jesus, the disciplinarian. In verse 20, you have Jesus, the dinner guest. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This verse is often used as an evangelistic text. Maybe at an evangelism rally or at the end of a sermon, the pastor says, Jesus is standing at the door waiting for you, non-Christian, to open it and invite him into your heart. The doorknob is only on your side, not his. You must open. I want to be gentle here, but I want to be pointed. Non-Christian, I don't think this verse belongs to you. It belongs to the local church. Now, I want you, non-Christians, I want you to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your soul's salvation. You are separated from God by your sin, but Jesus came to reconcile his to his Father. You need to repent and believe. That truth stays the same. Oh, oh, and by the way, the doorknob isn't on your side. <laughs> it's on his. Plus, when it comes to salvation, he doesn't knock and wait for you to open. He kicks down the door and saves. That's what he did with Paul. That's what he did with me. That's what he does with all. And some of you now, it's glorious. You're having your doors kicked in. Look out. Jesus is moving in. And he's bringing new furniture. But this verse isn't about evangelism. It's about the church. 
It's not an invitation for non-Christians to become Christians, but an invitation for Christians to renew their relationship with Jesus. It's not Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. It's Jesus knocking on the door of his church. Here's the actual picture. The church is treating Jesus like an outsider. The greeters are stopping him at the door. I'm sorry, sir, this isn't the place for you. Jesus is, is patiently and persistently knocking. It's present tense, indicating continual knocking. This is a picture of the master returning to his house. The servant should be swinging open the door and welcoming the master. But they aren't flinging the door wide and welcoming him into the innermost places of their soul. They keep him just outside the door and do business with him coolly, lukewarmly, through the mail slot. Jesus says, I, I see you walk into the church with your black Armani suits, your Carter Paris sunglasses, pockets full of gold, driving nice cars. But I'm on the outside. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. <laughs> Here, Jesus is full of truth and full of grace. Full of truth. You make me want to puke. <laughs> full of grace. I wish you'd invite me over for dinner. In this culture, when someone was estranged, they would give a meal, invitation, a meal invitation to reconcile. So by the invitation, they were saying, I want to collapse the distance and eat with you. This is a little foreshadowing of the final meal, the great banquet in the sky when the distance is fully collapsed. We will eat with Jesus. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is wonderful. This is the doctrine of identification with Christ. Whatever happens to him happens to us. Church, nobody else is giving you that. Nobody else is promising you that. You are no fool for following Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice how Jesus lays out this letter. He begins with sovereignty. Christ is the faithful witness and ruler of God's creation. He begins with sovereignty and he ends with sovereignty. Christ's faithful followers will share a place on Christ's throne. And then sandwiched in the middle, you have dining. Christ is dining, dining. Christ will vomit the lukewarm out of his mouth. And then the second dining, Christ will eat with those who open the door to him. Then in the very center, which is really the emphasis, you have prosperity. They think they are wealthy, but they are poor, blind, and naked. And then you have prosperity by gold, eye salve, and clothing from Christ. You see our, how our Lord has organized this, where the emphasis is in the middle? Now, to close today, I'd like to give you three penetrating questions. I want to ask three penetrating questions. Question number one. 
Are you succumbing to an affluent lifestyle without even realizing it? Are you, like Laodicea, succumbing to an affluent lifestyle without even realizing it? I am not asking, can you handle poverty? I'm asking, can you handle luxury? Are you caught up in a materialistic pursuit? I expect to drive a car. I expect a vacation every year. I expect to own a home. I expect to live in a certain kind of neighborhood. My children must have a certain education. I expect to wear a certain wardrobe. Get off Instagram. The gospel challenges these expectations. In this letter, the things we counted as rich, Jesus completely devalued. Gold, clothing, appearance. Laodicea happens quickly in the West. This letter warns of self-deception. Just because you're feeling good about yourself doesn't mean that you're spiritually vibrant. Are you succumbing to an affluent lifestyle without even realizing it? That's question number one. Question number two. Are you becoming braggadocious and taking credit for all the luxuries in your life? Are you becoming braggadocious and taking credit for all the luxuries in your life? <laughs> this church grew smug, thinking it was their work ethic, their ingenuity, their resources that gave them the wealth. I did this myself. I worked hard. I made it happen. I put in the hours. Don't you dare take credit for the ability of mind to think or the reasoning ability to make decisions. God help you. He can take it all away in a minute. Hey, Laodicea, earthquakes may not destroy your emergency fund, but Jesus can. You think you're completely self-reliant? You're not. Can you not see it? If anything, your wealth has hindered you spiritually. It hasn't helped you. You rely on your bank account, not your Christ. Economic prosperity often leads to a loss of spirit dependency. Marita. It was Marita who said that. Economic prosperity often leads to a loss of spirit dependency. When you're brilliant, make a lot of money, you say, I, I did some of this myself. Pray. Beg God that he will overcome your stubborn self-sufficiency. You haven't accomplished what you think you have. What is Jesus doing here? He's puncturing their complacency. And may he do the same to us. You are nothing apart from him. Are you deceived into self-dependency? It's dangerous. It's dangerous when your accomplishments are grounds for your confidence. Never be secure in your spiritual attainment. 
Question number three. Are you consistently repenting and buying from Christ? Are you consistently repenting and buying from Christ? Mark Dever, who pastors the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C., Mark Dever said the most serious sins will never be dealt with by church discipline. The elders can deal with adultery, but they can't always deal with a lack of love. This was the church at Laodicea's problem. Is it your problem? How did they grow lukewarm? They stopped repenting. Do you have a daily time where you evaluate your day and repent of sin? Implement it. Laodicea makes lots of promises. The gold is shining. The clothing is banging. Turning heads of people. It's invigorating. Laodicea promises a lot. But all their promises are cheap imitations of Jesus' promises. Are the promises of Jesus not enough for you? He dines with sinners. Laodicea promised clothes, riches, and salve. Those are all temporary promises. Jesus makes the same promises, but they're eternal. He was stripped of his clothes so that he could clothe you in white. Righteousness that will cling to you like your very skin. He became poor that you might become rich. He was wounded that you might see. His wounds produce gospel salve that opens the eyes. These are glorious promises coming forth from a glorious Christ. Would you stand with me in prayer? Father, your word has been our meat and drink. It has been medicine for our sick souls. It has been sunshine in our dark day. It has been exactly what we needed. Thank you. Thank you for speaking through the book. Amen.